Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus." In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would be very near to us, that you would stoop down to us now and that you would speak to us through your word. Father, fill me with faith and strength and wisdom and grace. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how many of you, when you're reading your Bible and you come across an introductory passage like this, tend, your eyes tend to glaze over and you tend to just kind of go right over the top of it? And how many of you even go so far as to get a little bit suspicious that passage is just kind of, that the Apostle Paul didn't really mean what he was saying, because it sounds a little too spiritual and a little too cute and a little too sweet. Anybody brave enough to admit that? Adam's not brave enough to admit that. He knows better. He's the most spiritual person in the room. Everybody, I'm going to sit down and let Adam come up and preach to you. I, I feel that way. I feel that way. And That's a fault of mine. I think the reason a lot of us feel that way when we come to passages like this is because we just can't relate. And one of the reasons we can't relate is because we've not walked through what these guys have walked through. And so in order for us to understand this passage and really feel it, I think it's important that we establish the context. And so I'm going to say a lot of things this morning that you already know And that's okay. Later in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, I'm repeating things. I'm always repeating things. It's no trouble to me and it's helpful for you. So I want to remind us of the context of this letter to the Philippians. First question you ask about context is what? Who wrote it? So who wrote it? The Apostle Paul. And who is the Apostle Paul? Well... He is an ex-Christian killer for one. In Philippians 3, 
He tells us he was a Jewish Pharisee who persecuted the church of Christ. In the book of Acts, we read that he was there when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death. We read that he went from city to city persecuting Christians and having them thrown in jail. Until, on the way to a city called Damascus, he met Jesus. And his entire world was turned upside down. Jesus told him that he had been set apart to be an apostle, a uniquely commissioned messenger of the gospel. And so Paul began preaching the good news of Jesus. He began preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And this man that came to Damascus in order to persecute Christians had to be lowered down over the city wall in a basket in order to escape being killed by the friends that he came with. So Paul began to preach the gospel, and he began to plant churches throughout all of the Mediterranean, and in every place he preached, he met intense opposition. He was often beaten, he was often thrown into jail. In 2 Corinthians 11, while comparing himself to impostors, he describes what being a real apostle has meant for him. He says that compared to the false apostles, he was with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now the Apostle Paul would eventually be beheaded for preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the author of this letter. He's writing this letter from prison, and he's writing it together with Timothy, his son in the faith, who traveled with him and was among his most trusted assistants. Now, who's he writing to? Who's he writing to? The church at Philippi. What was the church at Philippi? It was a church that the Apostle Paul planted after he saw a vision in the night of a man from the region, urging him to come and help them. So Paul and a couple of men got in a boat and set sail for Philippi. And they were only there for a couple of days. And in that couple of days, they started the church with the household of a rich, God-fearing Gentile named Lydia, a demon-possessed slave girl who got them stripped and beaten with rods and thrown into prison, and with the household of a jailer who tried to kill himself after God sent an earthquake to open all the jail doors for Paul and Silas. And then, in a matter of few days, they got kicked out of the city. Gone. This letter to the Philippians is believed to have been written roughly ten years later. Now, there were some other things we know about the church at Philippi. We know it was probably one of the best churches mentioned in all of the New Testament. It was certainly not like the other churches, it was not like the churches at Corinth or the, churches at, or the church at Galatia. And we know that because Paul doesn't deal with anything in this letter like he has to in many of his other letters. In most of his other letters, what does he have to deal with? 
sexual immorality, division, heresy, false teachers, more. But not so with the church at Philippi. This was a church that was mature and godly. But even so, it was not a church without its problems. We know that there likely wasn't any dispute about the Apostle Paul's authority in Philippi. And we know that because this is one of the very few letters that he doesn't even bother to introduce himself as an apostle in or argue for his apostleship. Just Paul and Timothy. We also know that the church at Philippi continued to suffer persecution. We know that because Paul teaches them how to respond to the trials and the sufferings that they're facing. That's really what a lot of this letter is, a call to stand fast in the face of suffering and to rejoice in the midst of it. Now, if the New Testament is an accurate representation of all of Paul's letters, and you're a first century church, or you're in a first century church, and you get a letter from the Apostle Paul, is that good news or bad news? It's bad news. Why is it bad news? Because it pretty much means that you're in trouble, that you're doing something wrong, that things are bad. But that's not the case for this letter. The occasion for this letter is this. The Apostle Paul had been in prison in Rome for some time, and it was very possible that he was facing execution, and he had largely been abandoned by many of his friends and his allies. And so the church at Philippi heard about Paul being in prison, And they got some money and some things together, and they sent them to Paul along with their faithful brother, Epaphroditus. And at some point along the way, or when he arrived in Rome, Epaphroditus got sick, and he very nearly died. So Paul is filled with gratitude, and he knows that the church is going to be worried about Epaphroditus. So he sends them a thank you note for their generosity. He explains what happened with Epaphroditus to them, and he tells them he'd like them to continue supporting him financially. And that's basically it. That's the occasion for this letter. Now, of course, because it's the Apostle Paul, it's much, much more than that. It's much more than a simple thank you letter. It turns into a a living commentary on joy and peace in the midst of great suffering. It's a living, breathing expression of Christian joy from a man who suffered more for the name of Jesus than most of us could ever dream or imagine of suffering. And it's written to a church that likely knows more of suffering than most any church will ever set foot in. It's real, it's honest, it's not cheesy, it's not phony. It's raw at times, but it's, it's rich. And in the midst of all the joy, the joy of knowing Jesus Christ and walking in his ways is very practical teaching on what it means to suffer as a Christian, what it means to live together in unity, and what it means for us as Christians to interact with the world around us, and all in a way that honors Christ and brings him the greatest amount of glory possible. Now that just scratches the surface of the context, and I want to go even deeper because I want to explore the relationship between Paul and this church at Philippi. He speaks in this passage of their relationship in terms of a partnership in the gospel. The New American Standard, I think, goes wonky and cold here. It translates the Greek word koinonia as participation. And then in another place translates a similar word rooted in the word koinonia as partakers of. But the word koinonia is a rich and warm word. The King James and the English Standard Version do much better when they talk about partnership and when they use words partnership and fellowship. 
fellowship in grace. They're partners in the gospel. They have fellowship together in grace. He speaks of their relationship in very intimate, affectionate terms too. He says, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Whenever he thinks of them, his heart overflows with gratitude to God and he prays for them. Now, why would the Philippian church's partnership in the gospel be so precious to the Apostle Paul? Why would their fellowship with him in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, why would that be so precious to him? We've talked about what the Apostle Paul's life was like, and it's easy for us to remember some of those bigger things about his suffering and his church planting. But what I think one of the things we tend to forget most is is how he had to endure all of those sufferings and how he had to walk through all of those labors, which is basically alone. He had to stand alone. He was almost never supported. He was nearly always abandoned wherever he went. In 2 Timothy 1.15, he writes Timothy about some of the missionary journeys he's been on, and he tells Timothy that all who are in Asia turned away from him, except for one man in his household who are not ashamed of his chains. In 2 Timothy 4.16, he writes that everyone in Troas deserted him. Everyone. In fact, he lists a handful of people by name in his two letters to Timothy, names of men who abandoned or deserted him. Hymenaeus gets mentioned twice, Alexander, Phygelus, Hermogenes, Philetus. And this is not only true of those that he walked with and worked with and partnered with in his missionary work. It's also true of the very churches that he planted. He spent a year and a half planting the church at Corinth, caring for them, building them up in the faith. But if you read the two letters we have in the New Testament of Paul writing to the Corinthians, you soon realize that their central problem is that they've abandoned the teaching of Paul and turned aside to other teachers, to super apostles. Consequently, they're filled with sexual immorality and division and drunkenness and super spiritual pride. The same thing is true of the Galatian church. They've abandoned the gospel and they've forsaken the teaching of the Apostle Paul. They've bought into the lies of false apostles who are teaching false doctrine. So Paul has to write them and try to win them back to himself and to God. This is the Apostle Paul's life. Now, do you remember who it was that helped plant the church in Philippi? Silas. Now, why was it that Silas went with Paul to plant the church in Philippi? Because Barnabas would not go. Barnabas refused to go. Barnabas was Paul's longtime partner. He was the man who convinced everyone else that Paul was legitimate, that he had repented of being a persecutor of the church. Barnabas was the man that the Apostle Paul called his son of encouragement. They went on their first missionary journeys together. But Barnabas left Paul and he refused to continue working with him. Why? Why did Barnabas leave Paul? Barnabas left Paul because Paul did not want to take Mark on their next journey. And Barnabas, who happened to be Mark's cousin, did. Now, why did the Apostle Paul not want to take Mark? He didn't want to take Mark because the last time that 
Paul and Mark had worked together, Mark abandoned him when things got tough. The Apostle Paul led a very, very lonely life. Not even his own converts, not even his own children in the faith wanted anything to do with him. They were ashamed of him as soon as he was out of the picture. They didn't want to obey him. They didn't want to support him. They didn't even want to be associated with him. Nobody wanted anything to do with the Apostle Paul except for the church at Philippi. This is the church that the Apostle Paul actually bragged about in 2 Corinthians. You remember he writes and he talks about how the churches of Macedonia gave out of their poverty to support the needs of the saints. Philippi is in Macedonia. He's talking about the church at Philippi. And so, here this church in Philippi, this lone church, hears that the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome. So what do they do? They gather together what resources they can. They call Epaphroditus, their faithful brother, and they send Epaphroditus to Paul to encourage him. They almost lose him on the way. He almost dies. Now picture yourself with the context. Picture yourself as the Apostle Paul in prison, chained to Roman soldiers on either side, abandoned by everyone, except for maybe, except for Timothy and maybe one or two other close friends. You're looking at the possibility of being executed for preaching the gospel. Most of the churches you've risked your life to plant have turned away from you and left you to die or rot in prison. You've been abandoned by everybody, even your closest friends and companions. This is your life. So there you are. And then Epaphroditus shows up. Half dead and bearing gifts from the church at Philippi. They heard that you were in chains for the gospel and they wanted to help. They wanted to stand with you. They wanted to support you and to help you bear the weight of your suffering. They remember all that you've done for them and how you showed them the way of salvation when they were lost in their sins. How you weren't afraid to deal with them truthfully about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, do you think that the Apostle Paul was grateful? Do you think that he loved them? Do you think there was anything perfunctory about this greeting? Listen to it again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all have fellowship with me in grace. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, do you have relationships like that? Do you have people in your life that when you think of them, you can't help but thank God for them? 
Can you say what the Apostle Paul says? You're my partner in the gospel. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. Can you say that about anyone in your life? Or maybe more pointedly, can anybody say it about you? By comparison, most of our relationships are shallow. They're based on little more than the things that we like. Even here in the church. Think back to high school. How many of you have yearbooks? Yes. And how many of you have yearbooks that are full of autographs and sweet little messages from people that you don't know who they are anymore? What are the contexts for relationships, for our relationships? The water cooler at work, the guy in the cubicle next door, or the office next door. Our kids play on the same soccer team, and so we sit on, stand on the sidelines together. We have the same classes. And what are the grounds for your friendships? You like the same things? You're really into this band, or IU basketball, or hunting, or... Watching the, you watch the same TV shows. That's as deep as it gets for most of us. And then we maintain those very shallow relationships very, very superficially. Facebook and text messaging and Twitter. And if we're really intimate, maybe email. Which drives us nuts because we're meant for deep relationships with people, for intimacy. We crave it. So we get lonely and depressed and we turn to getting our intimacy vicariously through other means, through artificial means. We immerse ourselves in TV shows or novels that scratch us right where we itch and we become so emotionally invested in our TV shows that we can't miss an episode. The characters become our friends and we laugh and we cry and are angry with and happy for our friends on the TV screen. And we can run the full gamut of all those emotions in just under 40 minutes. And the same thing's true with the books that we read. The same thing's true of pornography. We give ourselves over to pornography because we crave intimacy with the opposite sex or some of us with the same sex. But we don't have real intimacy with real people in the context of a real relationship. Just fake intimacy mediated by a computer screen. And in the church, it's rarely much different. We tend to hang out with people who are easily accessible and who like the things that we like. And to a degree, that's okay. You're allowed to like the things you like. You're allowed to talk about and share the things you like with other people who like the same things. But it's hard for us to go beyond that, isn't it? It's hard to go beyond that. It rarely gets deeper than that. And if we're not careful, we end up being no different than everybody else. This is just a social club. In other words, we're constantly tempted to be just as shallow as the Corinthians and the Galatians and Paul's missionary companions. But that's not how it's meant to be. This is the church of the living God purchased by the blood of Jesus. In Christ, God unites men and women from different ages and races and interests And he binds us together through baptism into a brotherhood that is deeper and more real than blood. We become family. 
If we're going to have real deep fellowship, if we're going to have real relationships that are deeper and stronger and longer lasting than our relationships with our coworkers or our classmates, it's going to take something much bigger to draw us together than football or music. So look with me again at Philippians chapter 1. Let's look closely at the relationships or the relationship between Paul and the people of this church. The first thing that we need to see in this passage is that there can be no healthy relationships outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what binds them together. In verse 5, Paul says that the church at Philippi has been a partner with him in the gospel from the very first day until now. And in verse 7, he says that they all have fellowship together in grace. The basic problem with all relationships, of course, is sin. Sin has destroyed our relationship with God and destroyed our relationships with one another. And we can trace that all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But in the gospel, God reconciles us to himself by placing the punishment of our sins on Jesus. He calls us to repentance and faith. And when we come, our relationship with him is restored. And there is forgiveness and healing. A real relationship. He becomes our father and we become his adopted sons. Then God immediately puts us in relationship with other Christians in the context of a church, which is what the Bible calls the household of faith. These are our brothers and sisters and God tells us to love one another as we have been loved. To forgive one another as we have been forgiven. To share all things with one another. Just like in Acts, they had all things in common. This is impossible work, but God has given us his Holy Spirit so that by faith we can do the impossible. This is what it means to have fellowship in grace. This is all God's work in and among us. God draws us to Christ. God fits us together. God builds us up into one body, into a holy temple. This is why the Apostle Paul thanks God for the partnership of the Philippians and not the Philippians themselves. God does the work, so God gets the thanks and the glory. God has done this work for us, and it's beautiful. So the very first thing that's necessary if we're to have healthy relationships with anyone is for us to first be reconciled to God and to be restored to a right relationship with Him, adopted into His family through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which then in turn gives us fellowship with one another in grace. Communion with God, communion with one another. And then we need to understand that it is God who mediates in all of our relationships. It is Christ who stands between us and everyone. In verse 8, Paul says that he yearns for the church at Philippi with the affection of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means that his affection for them is pure, earnest, steadfast, sacrificial. Jesus taught him how to love and he loves them in Christ Jesus. There's a reason Jesus says that what we do to the least of these is something we do to him. Loving Christ means loving one another, and loving one another is what it looks like to love Jesus. This is why John says over and over that he who loves God loves his brother. And he who loves his brother demonstrates his love for God. He who does not love his brother shows he has no love for God. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. We have to understand that our love for one another is not independent of our love for God. If we've been restored in our relationship to God, our love for God will overflow into love for one another. And when we love one another, it will be an expression of our love for God. 
In other words, Christian love is all about God. It's not about us, and it's not about what we can get from each other. It's about loving others as he has loved us. Because you sin against me, and I sin against you. Your personality grates against me, and I, mine grates against you. You love soccer, and I didn't know until very, very recently that soccer was even a sport. You bear the image of God. You are an adopted son of God, so you're my brother or sister in Christ. When we look at one another, we need to see Jesus, not what you can do for me or what I can get from you. And we need to love as Jesus loved, laying down our lives for one another, bearing in our hearts all the affection of Christ Jesus. We also need to see that in the context of the church, we grow together as we suffer together, as we serve together on the great mission of God, which is seeing the whole world return to him. This really is, I think, the most important thing that we can learn from this relationship. It was forged in the fires of adversity as they obeyed God and were faithful to the great commission and suffered together because of it. They walked through the battle of life together. They were committed together to grow in godliness, to see the gospel go forward, to see God's kingdom advance, to see the mission accomplished. They weren't just committed to one another in some kind of happy-go-lucky, click-your-heels-together sense. They were committed to one another in the midst of a great fight, and they were fighting together to become holy and to see the lives of others changed and to see the world changed. They were trusting God to work. They were partners in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, and they suffered greatly for it. So they shared in one another's suffering. They bore one another's burdens. They encouraged and strengthened one another in godliness. They realized that when one person went down, everybody else suffered too. That's the foundation, and it bears this fruit. It bears the fruit of thanksgiving. I thank God every time I think of you. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude, he says, because it's such a privilege. It's such a privilege to be a part of the household of God, to be reconciled to God, to have relationships that are bigger and deeper than all the superficial relationships that we spend our lives longing for. And then to be loved by others in return and to feel and see and know the love of Jesus in the love of our brothers and sisters for us fills us with thanksgiving and gratitude, fills us with confidence. Did you notice that it's the partnership of the Philippian church and the work of the Apostle Paul that gives him the confidence to say that he's sure God is at work in them and that God himself will complete that work? As we labor together, as we serve together, as we suffer together, not only is our commitment to one another confirmed, but so is our commitment to God. We prove ourselves to one another when we stand by each other in the midst of battle. And we don't share that kind of fellowship or confidence with those who aren't in the fight with us. With those who aren't pouring themselves out for the kingdom of God. It bears fruit in service. When you're in community with others in God, your life becomes conformed to Christ and it becomes about serving. It becomes about laying down your life so that others may live. And that's the whole context for this whole passage. It's the service of Paul for the church at Philippi, the service of the Philippian church for the Apostle Paul. It bears fruit in affection. It's a humbling thing to be loved by others. It's a humbling thing to be served by others. It's a sweet thing when others lay down their lives for you as Christ laid down his life for them. 
It's a sweet thing to labor alongside others who are as committed to the kingdom of God as you are. And unless you have a heart of stone, it produces immense affection. It's what we see throughout Scripture. We see grown men crying and kissing one another. And I'm, it's not a cultural thing. It's the fruit of the gospel in their lives. It's the fruit of their partnership with one another in the fight. It overflows in prayer. The Apostle Paul can't help but write down his prayer for these people. He loves them deeply. And it's a prayer for their growth and sanctification, a God-centered prayer. He longs for them to grow more and more in their love for one another. I have one friend left from high school, which is more than probably most of you have. His name's Joe. I didn't grow up with him. I had no idea who he was before high school. And until my senior year, the only contact I had with him was making fun of him. But even though our relationship has been strained, it's the one relationship that's persisted. Why? Because Joe's been a partner in the gospel. We came to faith at the same time. God reconciled us to himself and to one another. And then he put us through a lot of growth and a lot of suffering and a lot of fighting and a lot of sinning and a lot of repenting together. Why? The question we have to ask ourselves, I think, every Sunday is, why are we here? Why are you here? Is this just a social club for you? A place, a place where you can meet other people who are safe, who are nice, who are conservative, who share similar interests? A place where you can hopefully find a husband or a wife? This is the church of the living God, and she is holy. We want to be laborers here. We want to be people who are committed to the vision of seeing God's kingdom expand here in Bloomington. We want to work together, serve one another, pray for one another, be affectionate and sweet with one another. another. We want to be a people who are overwhelmed with thanksgiving because God has saved us and given us a family, a home. A people who can't help but share that with everyone we meet. That's what we want to be. And if we have that kind of love for one another... If that's what characterizes us, then how on earth will we have enough space for all of the people who are attracted to it? For all the students who are going to be coming to campus in a couple of weeks. You realize that in a couple of weeks we're about to be overwhelmed with students again. Students who are starving for love, starving for affection, starving for intimacy, starving to be restored to God the Father Almighty. And they're starving for real community, real family. They just don't quite know it yet. Because they've never seen it. The closest thing they've ever seen to it is playing together with an orchestra or playing on a soccer team or on a basketball team or their TV shows or going to IU basketball games or hanging out at the bar and watching football with their buddies. Church, the truth is we have something like this kind of fellowship here. We have something like that kind of sweetness, even with many who have left here. Stop and think about those who have moved away that you personally have mourned the loss of. Who You can't think of them without giving thanks to God for them. You don't have to be here too long, I don't think, for that to happen to you. How many of you remember Ryan Corrali? Not... Not a lot. Some of you do, some of you don't. 
She was only here as an undergraduate student. She got married just last weekend, and Amanda and I got to go up to the wedding. And it was such an encouraging wedding. Everything about it, simple, humble, sweet, godly. It was just like our weddings, same liturgy, everything, even did a goofy song at the end. She vowed to obey her husband. It was the first time the pastor had ever used that liturgy. Do you know, the first person that I met on the elevator going to the reception, I introduced myself as Ryan's college pastor. He knew who I was. He was an elder in her church up there in Madison. He knew who I was. He knew who Tim Bailey was. He started talking to me about the Bailey blog and about how much he's learned from the Bailey blog and about how much he loves it. And I met her pastor, and we got in this conversation about how they watched the Doug Wilson stuff, and they follow the blog, and they, it's just sweet. What does that tell you about Ryan? She loves us. She loves us. She's not ashamed of us. She holds us in her heart. How many of you saw her and her fiance and their two friends who came all the way down from Madison for our summer conference? They were here. And many of you don't even know who she is, but she has been a constant encouragement to me and Amanda since she moved away. She's taken the good things that have been entrusted to her here and she's been building on them. I spent the whole weekend old time at the wedding, thinking of this passage. I thank my God every time I remember you. And there are many other former students like Ryan out there who have graduated and moved on that I just can't help but thank God for. And you can probably think of many people, some of you who have been here for a while can think of many people I don't even know. Think about those people. I tend to always think of those who have abandoned us who have left, and I don't think so much on the encouraging ones. In two or three weeks, there's going to be a whole new batch of faces here, and God is calling you to love them, to embrace them, to help them, to welcome them into our fellowship, to train them to be partners with us in the gospel, so that no matter where they go from here, we will thank God for them, and they will thank God for us. But for that to happen, we have to be committed to persevering in the work. We have to have faith. We have to be reminded of those that God has kept close. We have to look at, in the face, meeting new students and going through all of the pains again of getting to know them, of loving them, of speaking truth into their lives, of being rejected by some of them, and then of tearful partings. We have to look it all in the face and embrace it with faith and with joy, understanding that this is God's calling for us. This is our, our gift, or God's gift to us. We get to walk through this all the time and send people out who love God and who are a blessing to their churches and communities. But we can only do that if we persevere in loving everybody who comes. And going through all of the hard work all over again and saying hard goodbyes all over again. So have faith for it. Look forward to these coming weeks. 
Be ready to embrace them full on. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would humble our hearts before you and that you would fill us with real love for one another. I pray that our fellowship here would be real and sweet, a product of our partnership together in the gospel and our fellowship in grace. Father, I pray that you'd bring many students here in the next several weeks, and I pray that you would help us to love them and to show them Christ. And I pray that there would be many more students who go out from us who we thank you for and who thank you for us. Help us, Father, to be a blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.